Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon. My name is Callum Robertson and welcome to a very special show today. Uh, today, uh, it's quite a special show for a number of reasons. Firstly, first ever show uh, with uh, Teacher Talk Radio. But arguably, more importantly than my ego, there is a special guest joining me momentarily. Uh, she's Neve Sweeney, uh, who's the Deputy General Secretary of the National Education Union, who'll be joining me to talk all things education policy and all things um, teacher related uh, for the next hour and a bit. And in that time, we're going to be taking audience questions. We're going to be finding out what motivated Neve to get involved as a teacher with the NEU. And um, we're really going to be focusing on what makes the new uh, the strike action that's coming up so important. Um, Neve has uh, I've got a notification saying she's joined the room now. Uh, Hello, Neve. Have you managed to call in? Technical issues aside, we've all managed to join. So let's kick off the show. Thank you so much for coming to join us today. Um, Absolute pleasure. No, it's fantastic to have a speaker who's really quite senior in the National Education Union join us, uh, especially with the recent news of the strikes that have happened. uh, Sorry, being voted on haven't happened yet. Obviously, they're in about two weeks time. So I just wanted to kick off uh, by handing the floor over to you. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us uh, a bit about your background and how you got into teaching? Uh, Yes, so I'm Neve Sweeney. I'm the current uh, Deputy General Secretary, the first elected Deputy General Secretary of the National Education Union. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to people that know me. Uh, I didn't ever really plan uh, to be a teacher. Uh, I enjoyed school, um, uh, probably a little bit more of the social side than the academic side, uh, my sixth form teachers would probably say. Um, and I uh, went and studied history and politics uh, at university, enjoyed that, uh, and and started my sort of career, I suppose, um, working in Dublin uh, in uh, small independent publishing companies after university, um, publishing political, uh, non-fiction, uh, fiction, poetry. And as while I was there, we published one of the first um, adult literacy Uh, fiction ranges written purposely for uh, adults learning to read Um, and it was fascinating so we had really top authors um, especially uh, not adapting their work but writing it for adults Um, and that really inspired me and I went from there to train to be a voluntary literacy tutor uh, in Dublin and I loved it and then it was a quite brave or mad decision at that point to leave that job and I went to uh, train to be a youth and community worker and spent a couple of years working in Dublin at the height of what was economic boom at that point but working with homeless children and what we called at the point uh, at that point unaccompanied minors now we probably call them traffic children Um, and you know it was often the theme going through that part of my career part of my work was education hadn't quite worked out for all of those people that it hadn't been the experience that I'd had 
Um, and then I moved back to England and worked in Cambridgeshire for the probation service, working uh, with offenders, minimum, medium risk offenders uh, on thinking skills, cognitive behaviour therapy, sometimes drama, um, uh, getting them to think about problem solving skills. And I received my best, I think my best careers advice at that point from uh, somebody I was working with who said, I wish I'd learned all of this at school. And that was when I started thinking about how could I begin to work within the more formal education system. And I don't know if you can remember the, uh, the early 2000s when there was money in education and uh, jobs for support roles. I applied and, and got a job at my local FE college, um, working with young people who were, um, you know, the first in their families to stay on in post uh, compulsory education at that point, mainly working with children from the traveling community, girls in particular, getting them uh, opportunities, apprenticeships or um, uh, BTECs. And they supported and trained me to uh, uh, carry out my PGCE. And that's how I started teaching. Wonderful. And have you, have you always taught in the state sector or did you do any time in uh, special independent special schools or? No, like I've that? always taught in the state sector. Um, I started in uh, general FE colleges, uh, then spent some quite significant time working in a secondary school in Cambridge um, uh, with some sixth form work uh, and uh, but taught from year nine um, upwards. Uh, I, find, I, I absolutely think anybody who works with young children, they are very courageous. Um, I, I, I like the cut and thrust of working with teenagers. And then I worked uh, in a sixth form college. So uh, I finished off my teaching career working at Long Road Sixth Form College in Cambridge. Fantastic. Uh, a school I know quite well. I, I grew up down the road in Peterborough. Excellent. Um, yeah, no, Cambridgeshire is so lucky to have a lot of teachers of your skill uh, talking uh, with who had alternative experiences and then decided to become teachers. Um, which is a fascinating thing that sort of it's really taken off the career changes in the last sort of 20 odd years. Uh, have you got any advice to anyone who would potentially wish to become a teacher who's currently in a career that they sort of are enjoying but not necessarily fulfilling all of their potential in? Well I, I think teaching is you know it's an absolute privilege it's an absolute privilege to be with young people when they are making decisions about their life choices or you know, have it seeing them learn and grow and develop and understand things. But I don't think we can underestimate actually how hard it is. And, I, you know, when I've spoken to uh, people changing careers or whilst at university saying that they're interested in teaching, I think it's really upon us to be honest with them about actually how uh, how difficult and how hard it can be. Young Because what I don't want people um, entering the career is to be disillusioned by it very quickly. So particularly during the Gove years, I remember having a, a conversation with somebody about wanting to become an English teacher and I asked them why. And she said it was because she was passionate about her subject. And I thought, you're gonna need more than that. You're going to need more than passion about a subject. You're going to need to think about how you can engage with children and young people to share that passion. Um, but it absolutely is the best career. Uh, I miss being in the classroom. Um, uh, and I miss that engagement and there's nothing better 
than seeing people that you might have taught 10, 15 years ago going on to become teachers themselves or going on to work in nursing and midwifery and social work and amazing, amazing young people that they've turned out to be. Absolutely. I've, I've keep in contact with some of my teachers uh, to this day. And I remember messaging one of them when I qualified as a teacher um, and she was surprised to say the least. <laughs> um, but actually it's that thing of you, you've got sort of that shared experience and I can honestly say for me, it's the one thing, the one job I've ever had in my life where I get up every morning, even when you're feeling a bit under the weather, even when you're feeling a bit down and actually you still want to do your job. And those kids at the end of it and their outcomes are so important to all of us. Um, so with that in mind, um, you obviously didn't just stay in the classroom. You did some other stuff as well. So uh, when did research for the show? discovered you're a local councillor. Uh, how do you find juggling a, being a local councillor uh, with, I assume, being a teacher to start with and being a union official? Um, well, you know, it, it's not uh, it's not easy, but I think they're all connected. I mean, I, I, I became a councillor um, or I stood to be a councillor. I, I didn't ever expect to win, but I became a sort of, a, a, you know, a, a local activist of, Cambridge is known throughout the world as being, you know, for education. It's known um, for, you know, its its development of amazing IT and problem solving. Um, and yet if I walk across the city, and it's not a large city, it's really, a, you know, a town. If I walk across the city, there's a huge deprivation and there is a 10-year difference in life expectancy from one ward to the other. And I worked in a, a secondary school in the city centre um, and we did a, a you know, a, a field trip out uh, looking at um, accessibility for people with um, visual impairments uh, with some of our social care students. And I took them into the market square and asked them what they knew about the city, the city that they were from, that their parents were from. And I asked them about the buildings and out of 10 students, only one had ever been inside one of the university buildings. And that made me, you know, we've got such amazing things happening in our city, but it, it's so inaccessible for so many of our young people. Um, so I worked really hard and, and I've got a great team in my ward of um, political activism, of making our outdoor spaces uh, more accessible, about making our city cleaner um, and making it safer for young people. And, and I did exactly the same in my role as a, as a union official or a union rep of talking to people and taking time to sit to listen and it meant a lot of door knocking and a lot of walking around the streets and getting to know my local area but it was always really important to me that I stood in the area that I lived in that I heard and represented those people um, I'm not standing again uh, in May and and whilst I think about that will give me some of my evenings back and I won't have to sit in council meetings anymore it, I will miss that because we have absolutely, um, as the leading group in the city, transformed so many people's lives and worked really hard over lockdown to make sure that, um, you know, we, we do have a reputation for, for street sleeping in Cambridge and we worked really hard to ensure that anybody who wanted a bed could have a bed, um, that we've got great sustainable food projects all around the city for people that are struggling in the cost of living crisis and how we can respond to that. So I see it all inter interlinking um but i became active in politics because of my trade union work as opposed to using my politics to 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 you know in increase my trade union activity no, absolutely and and there is a massive overlap particularly in the labor movement about um trade unionism 
and actually representation of people in the workplace. And I quite I find local politics fascinating, but I'm usually in a minority of one there. <laughs> um, but that that's just me. Um, so obviously we've chatted about being a local councillor, getting your evenings back, but actually a union official. Now, the union, the NEU, has been in the news a fair bit in the last couple of days, um, I think it's fair to say. How on earth did you end up involved in the union? Well, I've always been a member of a union um, wherever I've worked, and, and that's because my mum was always quite active, was very active in the trade union. We're a trade union family, really. I've got relatives who were presidents and, and officials in trade unions around the world. Um, so it was always something that was important to me and having always worked you know mainly predominantly in the public sector um trade union activism was there and i suppose you know the uh, like many people i think who ended up becoming more active in their trade union role um something at work happened to me and i was i i felt i was treated unjustly um and uh, i was very upset and i remember going home and crying this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out! Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! Uh, that had heard that I'd been treated badly at work. And they were my rep and uh, they supported me, um, I, you know, to decide what I wanted to do about my treatment um, and absolutely helped build up my confidence again of, of being in the workplace. And as they are a good rep, they then said, well, how do you fancy getting involved? And, and, and so I did and very quickly um, ended up at our national conference and was just absolutely blown away by the, the democracy of it all, of that me as a member from a college in Cambridge that had never really been active in the union before could suddenly have a voice um, that could make changes to education that could benefit my colleagues. I, in, at that first conference, I learned so much. Uh, I think my family think I'm, I'm a bit odd that, you know, it was the Easter holidays. I went away. We work in a really, educators who work in a really high pressure environment. And then it comes to our holidays and we go and we sit in a room with another thousand teachers and talk about education for a couple of days. Um, but it really empowered me of thinking, actually, if if we're going to move, ensure that young people get the best education and children get the best education that they're entitled to, being active and involved in that change is really important. So I, I got involved at a national stage quite early and and then worked with my local district and branch and took on some of those organising roles of just making sure that meetings were accessible to people, that, um, you know, we putting on training for other other uh, teachers and support staff in the area, because, you know, that's part of the thing that, that we know. We, I, I do look back on those halcyon days in the early 2000s when there was money in education and I was able to go on CPD. That doesn't happen so much anymore. And so much of that can be done through the organising of a good trade union group locally. Um, and I, you know, we're seeing that today all over the country. There are NEU members uh, organising support uh, for each other in, in CPD and development sessions today. Fantastic. And it's one of the great things about the unions. We were in our union meeting uh, with work last week and 
the ideas that were bouncing off each other. Now, we're lucky in my school to have a very supportive senior leadership, and it's not a combative relationship mm. that you see in a lot of schools. But obviously, that's not always the case. Uh, how would you recommend people get involved in the union if they're in a school where actually there is a there is a hostility towards unions? Well, I mean, it's it's really difficult. And I, I think, you know, we see it sometimes in the press and we've seen it sometimes in the news over the last couple of months about people separating the unions from working people. You know, so you hear people say union leaders, what are union leaders doing? What's the union doing? Well, of course, the union is the workforce. It is the teachers in the school. And I don't believe that any head teacher or senior leadership team would want to be combative or um, or ignore what their workforce is saying to them. And I think it's really important that, you know, we, it's, we, you know, you were talking about your workplaces being, you know, very supportive, you know, teachers and, and workers talk to each other. So if, if you know that there's a supportive workplace down the road and they're enabling people to do really simple things to reduce their workload, like, decide on their own marking policy or um, do their marking at home, do their PPA at home, have time off to be able to see their own child's nativity play or take their child to school one day a week. If, if you're hearing about that good practice, you can collectivise as a group at work and take that to your leadership team and say, hold on, why can't we do those things? Surely we can work together to make the environment more pleasant and better for everybody to be in. Because if you are happy in your workplace, you stay longer um, you know, you, you commit to the role, you commit to your school community and it makes uh, everything easier for everybody to do. I, I don't see being a trade unionist as being someone who's always having arguments. It is about looking for solutions and ideas and how we make uh, the situation that we're all working in much better for everybody. Because the idea is, you know, we want education to be a good experience for people working in it as well as young people. I see. And on, on the subject of ideas, you are running for General Secretary of the National Education Union. I, I believe it is the first election it's had um, since the merger. Tell me about your plans, your campaign. What, 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 what's, your, what's your ambition? What's your dream for the NEU? Well, my dream for the NEU is, you know, we're only five years old and, and it's been a whirlwind of five years. You know, I don't think... Any of us could have predicted when on you know, the 1st of September 2018, we sat down in a, a meeting room and it, and it became the National Education Union that we would have played such a pivotal role in changing the way that education has worked, um, that you know, teachers moving their practice online overnight and how we supported each other as union groups to do that. Um, I don't think, you know, when we wrote our rule book, um, I remember sitting in a room um, just off Northumberland um, Avenue and uh, we were talking about our rule book and that meetings should take place in person. You know, we should have meetings in person because that helps build community and, and strength and collectivism. And I remember saying, what about Skype? You know, what, what about Skype? Could we think about using Skype as a, as a... And everyone went, no, no, no. And you think now, I mean, Skype has completely disappeared. Who uses it? But over the pandemic, we absolutely changed the way that we organised our groups, how we communicated with each other. And being part of um, a district meeting where we were talking about sharing ideas of how to um, engage young people 
online from teenagers to to year you know three two and three how do you engage children online to help provide education during a pandemic you know we had nearly 200 members on that meeting you know we might have a meeting in person and there might be 12 people um, turn up so i really want to think about how we build and grow on everything that we've innovated. We've been an innovative trade union, and I think we can really continue to do that. We have to uh, do those things to be heard, that we are the voice of the profession, and that we're looking to save the profession, because I really fear uh, that with uh, more cuts coming uh, the way, that the government sees an easy line or an easy win, is to replace a teacher with an instructor, someone reading something off an AI or a computer and lots of um, interaction. And actually we know as a profession that it's the relationships that we have with children and young people that make that education stick um, and make uh, support children to succeed. So we really have to think about making sure that politicians are listening to us and that we are giving solutions. And there are easy things that could be done to reduce teacher workload. Now, there's two things the union can do on that. It's about making sure that our policies are, are, are everything that we're doing reflects the issues that our members are saying they have in the workplace and that we are listening to them. But we also have to make sure that the government is doing their, uh, their job. And if they're not, then we will talk to every other political party and every other group to do that. And I think the easy wins are pausing offset inspection and reducing workload that way ending the, the, the formal grading, um, you know, the one, two, three, four, or the outstanding, the labelling of schools and end league tables. Now, that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have any sort of accountability, but that immediately takes pressure off a, work, a workforce that are, uh, you know, absolutely a point of desperation. I don't think we can underestimate the fact that ASCOL are, have carried out an indicative ballot about strike action and are considering strike action and the, the NAHT just missed their thresholds and are talking about reballoting. I don't think the government can underestimate that that says the profession is in real danger and it is absolutely time to act and the NEU will be at the fore of that um, and I want to, to ensure that I'm the leader that does that. So what policies, you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned obviously reforming or, or stopping Ofsted inspections. How does that work potentially for some of the schools that, and there are some schools out there that are failing their students? Well, you know, I, I'm not saying no inspection at all. I think it's really important that um, Ofsted uh, are over, you know, or whoever uh, 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 it would be looking at um, safety. Uh, you know, we know that we've got really poor building standards, that that is failing our children and young people, and that there are serious safeguarding inspections that need to take place. But we also know that Ofsted, and Ofsted have said this themselves, of course, Amanda Spielman said this in her annual report, that workload issues are causing an exodus of teachers. And we know in the profession that workload is often driven by inspection. Uh, we also know that uh, labelling a school and labelling a community doesn't always bring around improvement. What it does is means that you're more likely uh, to have a change of leadership, you're more likely to have a change of, uh, of, of staff, high staff turnover, and that doesn't do well for children. And then children, you often see children churn in a school and that doesn't help a community recover. You know, we need to ensure that 
teachers and school leaders have really got autonomy about how they teach and what they teach and reclaiming uh, uh, the curriculum so that they can provide you know, there's so much talk about catch up at the moment, isn't there? And catching up from from COVID. But so much of that is being pushed towards English and maths. And I'm not saying that that isn't important. But if you're missing PE or you're missing uh, drama or play to catch up in those subjects, you actually uh, really suck the joy out of learning for so many young people that have got difficult lives. So, you know, we need to see action on curriculum reform and looking at what it is we are teaching our young people and is it fit for a 21st century? You know, this government talks about high skill, high wage economy, but it's not investing in children and young people. And we need to also ensure that we are supporting all of our members to organise in their workplace um, and uh, giving members a voice within that democratic organisation. I think over the last couple of weeks, members have, have, have recognised that, that they have a voice, that they have a vote, that they uh, can take part in action to make things better. But so many of our members actually just uh, uh, consume our union and don't recognise that they've got a voice. And I think we have to really look at uh, why members don't engage. Uh, why members go to one meeting and don't go back. And I, you know, I have experience of that, of walking into a trade union room that, you know, is in somebody else's school. I'm, I'm not said, you know, nobody says hello to me. Nobody asks me who I am. And we have to make sure that we are a welcoming uh, organisation that ensures that everybody feels that they've got a voice. We absolutely have to be the place where you can safely debate and safely exchange views and then come to... Uh, a common uh, goal or conclusion, but we shouldn't be shutting people out because they uh, come from a different experience or a different background or we don't agree with them initially. And talking of different experiences and different backgrounds, um, one of the things that I noticed, particularly in the union meeting I was in earlier this week, uh, there are a lot of ECTs and early career teachers there. And that's fantastic that we've got younger people and people in your profession engaging with the unions however the fear that i saw and i saw it on facebook and eu groups as well is that there's no general strike fund um what is the uh NEU's approach to that and why wasn't there one established um in the run-up to this strike action um good question well according to our rule book and of course i would say as a democratic organization it's our conference every year that agrees our rules and and uh and decides to make rule changes. So for national action, we don't have uh, have a strike fund. However, each district um, has set up their own hardship fund um, and will be able to support uh, members who are in financial hardship for um, taking action. I absolutely understand there is that, that huge fear of, of, of losing pay. And when you are already working more unpaid overtime than any other profession and earning, you know, when you calculate your hours as an early career teacher, earning just, you know, sometimes under, just above the minimum wage, that the idea of sacrificing your, your wage for strike action is something that's really difficult to do. We need to be really clear to members that how that deduction is made. So it's, you know, it's one 
uh, uh, one over uh, 365 it's not a hot you know it's not a, a day's pay it's calculated in a, in a different way and to look and support members to recognize that if you take strike action on the 1st of February it, that will probably come out of your uh, February wages but later action wouldn't come out of uh, until your March wages so it's unlikely and we've looked significantly and our executive took a lot of time to really consider that if we are asking our members to take national strike action to save education that we are asking them to take we've announced seven days of action but that will be four days of action for each member and we looked at the spread of that and we looked at that specifically and our executive specifically talked about the impact on you know childcare costs on on the idea that somebody might not be earning uh, their wages that day but we're expecting them to drive into a rally or get a train to a rally and how much that would cost them so districts are absolutely aware of that and will have set up their own hardship funds um, and it, I you know will always say to any member you know, you shouldn't be um, uh, in financial difficulty because of your trade union activity so speak to your local uh, district and if you can't do that or you don't have a contact then please get in touch with me and I'll make sure that you're speaking to the right person. We also have um, a trust fund which is a charity run alongside our union and uh, so members put in contributions to the trust fund um, regularly as part of their, their subs and that has helped so many of our members um, over the pandemic and the cost of living crisis. I met a supply teacher um, uh, a, a number of months ago, she had lost her job. She'd been furloughed and lost her job as a, in, a, in the independent sector as a result of, of COVID and was now working as a supply teacher. And her exact words for me were, the NEU Trust Fund saved my life. So we don't underestimate the impact that the cost of living crisis or strike action is having on people. And we absolutely have support out there. And I urge members to come forward if they need help. No, fantastic. And actually, that's a message that I think a lot of early career teachers will be very relieved to hear. Um, just because I think it's one of those things where if you're more established, if you have um, savings, if you're, for example, have, ma have managed to survive an entire career um, and uh, in your 60s, you're quite likely to be mortgage free. So you won't necessarily understand uh, the fears that a lot of younger teachers. Yeah, absolutely. And are. I think, you know, you mentioned about Peterborough, I think particularly in areas where the, you know, we've seen it in the press and we absolutely you know so many of our members really do struggle and and yes the starting salary of uh, of a teacher sounds like a, a large wage and when you're a student you think wow that's that's amazing and then you realize that you have to pay rent you pay your student loan back you're traveling to work you know members are contacting us regularly saying that they're struggling to fill their cars on the fourth week of the month um, that they're reliant on parents uh, to to pay food bills or for childcare, and and there is a, you know there's significant outgoings, particularly early on in your career. Um, so we do recognise that, but that's why this strike action is really important yeah. because if those early career teachers don't stay in teaching, the impact for generations to come will be felt, and it's just such a waste because as we said before teaching is an amazing career it's absolutely fantastic we want people to join us we want new graduates to come in uh, and and we want them to stay because that's what makes children's experiences of education better general secretary um uh we've got a good question for east midlands members uh, the first three strike days are on a wednesday 
Some local members have raised concern about the same day being targeted each time. Strikes meant to be deliberately disruptive, but is putting them all on the same day a good idea? Uh, we have tried to move them around, and so um, some I think some are definitely on Tuesdays, and then there's a Wednesday, Thursday at the end. Uh, it, that I would say that's unfortunate. It is unfortunate, um, but you know, it is supposed to be disruptive. No member put that tick in that box to vote for strike action because they wanted to cause disruption. They put the tick in the box because they are at the absolute end of their tether. We don't want to take strike action. We want the government to come up with a solution. And if you think back, we did an indicative ballot of our members in the autumn term and 80% of our members ticked a box saying that they were prepared to take strike action, that they wanted to have a formal ballot. And we've done that formal ballot now. That was over four months ago. So the government knew four months ago that nearly 90% of our members were saying they were having enough and that something needed to be done. The motion, the conference motion that came from our membership to our national conference last April was talking about moving towards a national ballot of strike action. So almost a year ago, the government knew. We wrote to, we've written to four secretaries of state saying this is serious. Now, if the government were taking it seriously, would we have had four secretaries of state in eight months? Would they maybe have stuck with the same person and and really sat down and negotiated with us? Now, I go into the Department of Education regularly and I'm regularly talking to them about workload solutions and what we can do. But I had a meeting in my calendar, in my diary, to talk about workload reduction for for teachers. Um, I had it in my diary since before Christmas, and it was due to happen on Wednesday, and that was cancelled on Tuesday. Now, I want the government to seriously sit down the table, and our General Secretary, Mary Balstead, sat in six hours of negotiations or talks on Friday. But I don't think they seriously understand the difficulty that they are in. One in... A quarter of teachers leaves the profession within two years. 13% of teachers that qualified in 2019 have already walked away. And you know, and everybody listening to this, who's whether they're a teacher or a parent, a grandparent or a retired teacher, you know that you'll have been invited into a Meet the New Teacher event or you'll know a GCSE class that's had seven or eight different teachers for math, science or... or, um, or or, or geography. You know, we've got a real crisis in education here. The government need to sit down and talk to us. And because, you know, the other thing is that they're saying about minimum service levels, you know, absolutely. Young people's education, if these strike days go ahead, young people's education is going to be disrupted. Children's education will be disrupted. And unfortunately, parents' lives will be disrupted too. But if we had minimum service levels where you could guarantee that a child was being taught by a teacher who was qualified in their subject, that was committed and able to commit long term to the career, that we didn't have the largest class sizes in Europe and they are growing, um, that, you know, that's the sort of thing that the government need to, to seriously think about. It's on their watch that our education system has creaked uh, and is 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 in real jeopardy. And, and we also know that, I mean, I was reading about a school in C- Cumbria recently that's had to close and move its classes online and into other, uh, other schools in the surrounding areas because their building has been condemned. You know, this is how serious it is. And people, we can talk about it being the best career 
going, it absolutely is. If you're going into work day after day, working in those difficult conditions, it's not, uh, you know, it, 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 it absolutely is having a negative impact on our teachers' working lives. Mm. No, that's a very, very strong set of points there. We think about the NEU and of the media is very happy to pit unions against parents, etc. But the evidence from a poll taken in the Daily Mirror last week is that 73% of voters uh, support the strike action. What would you say to the media who are currently lambasting unions uh, for, for taking strike action? Well, you know, it, it is what I've said. No, nobody takes that action as a last resort. And it is, it, you know, it's only because we are a union of active members where, you know, I speak to members, I speak to members of the union every day and they tell me those stories. And so it's my responsibility to pass those stories on to journalists. And I've done a lot of media work in the last week and um, it, it, it was absolutely evident on the faces and in the voices of those journalists that they understand it because they hear those stories too. And so when you do a, a, a phone in on a local radio station, you have most people ringing in saying, you know, my son's doing their GCSE chemistry this year. They've not got a chemistry teacher. Um, I know a friend of mine's a physics teacher and his year 11s ask him if he's coming back next week every Friday evening because, you know, they've had so many. Um, we know that um, dance classes being uh, taught by uh, a long series of supply teachers, doing their best, but not in a dance hall uh, or a drama studio, in a classroom, because they're not qualified in the subject. And parents hear this and know this, and they recognise how hard teachers work. They know that also because of, of lockdown. So many of them, uh, you know, with the support of their school, absolutely recognised how difficult it is to uh, entertain and get a young person, you know, a child uh, with without the right equipment or without the right knowledge to support uh, somebody in their learning. So parents have been hugely supportive. And I think we, you know, whenever we are organising a picket line or a rally, we have to make sure that we're including parents and parental support on that as well. So, you know, we're encouraging districts to make sure that they've got some um, you know, uh, support for children and, and looking about making your picket line um, or banner making session as inclusive as possible because children deserve better and parents know that their children deserve better and that that's why we're taking this action. Fantastic. So you have mentioned a couple of times subject specialism. Now, I'm one of a number of teachers who te now teaches very happily um, in a subject that I wasn't originally trained in. Um, I now teach law, politics and RA. I originally trained as a history teacher. Um, what's, what, what, what would you say is the danger of, of having a lot of subjects taught by non-specialists? Well, I did something similar to you, actually. I, I sort of morphed and, and grew and developed my subject, um, you know, o over my career. And the thing about that is about you being in control about it, isn't it? And about how much of your workload changes. So I was a, a health and social care teacher. And then because of my background working in probation, I actually um, took on some new teaching in criminology. But I was able to manage that of how much of my timetable um, became the new subject. I've also taught, taught out of my subject area completely um, and I taught some anatomy and physiology which isn't my area and I'm honest with you um, it made me ill 
Uh, it nearly drove me out of the profession completely. And it wasn't a good experience for the children that I was teaching. Now, they didn't necessarily know that I'm a good actress. They didn't necessarily know that I didn't, wasn't a specialist in my subject, but they weren't getting the best. And I think if you are teaching more than 25% of your curriculum in an area that you've not studied since you were at school, um, or you haven't got an A-level or a, a part of your degree qualification in, then it absolutely is really difficult because you're spending all of your time over planning, being over critical, uh, making sure that you're one step ahead and over anticipating what questions you might get in the classroom. And of course, you don't always have the answers. And that is really difficult on top of everything else that you're, that, that you're doing as a teacher. So absolutely, with support and with CPD and with your own professional development hat on, you can diversify and change. You know, we know teachers move from early years to teaching in secondary or from secondary to teaching in primary. But that has to be done where you are in control about it and make those decisions yourself. When you're constantly teaching out of your subject, and we've seen this in some areas where you can't recruit a, um, a history teacher, so you employ a humanities teacher or a geography teacher and you've got them teaching history, it's really difficult for you to do over a long period of time. And it means that the experience that the children are getting is not always the best. So. We, I know from a post-16 perspective, talking to applied science teachers in, in sixth form college, that they recognise that when children come in with a GCSE science and they've not been taught physics by a physics specialist, that there are gaps in their knowledge. Um, so it's not good for children, it's not good for results, and it's not good for, for, for skills in the future. And it's really not good if you're doing it um, and it's making you sick. Absolutely. Um, I say when I did it, I voluntarily, when I applied for a new job, wanted to ha take on a new experience. So wanted to take on new subjects. Mm -hmm. But I imagine I am probably in a minority of people who and uh, changing from history to, say, law or politics is not the biggest jump, especially with my degree being law. Um, but actually, part of this problem with lack of subject specialists is recruitment and retention crisis. How do we as a profession solve the fact? that not enough people want to become teachers, and of those who do make the plunge become teachers from very good teachers, are driven out of the profession. How do we tackle that? Well, I mean, that's what, you know, is it our job to tackle it? Uh, part of it is, and I think we can do that in our workplaces by addressing our own workload and collectivising and making decisions and, and having discussions with our leaders about what we can do to make our own place, workplaces um, healthier, uh, for our, our members and our staff members to work in. So, you know, when I talk to, to members and, you know, it, it, I don't think anybody goes into teaching thinking that they're not going to be busy, that it's not going to be a full day, that they're not going to work hard. I would always be very willing to spend every hour of my day planning exciting uh, lessons but that wasn't always the case. I actually had to spend lots of my time doing things that weren't exciting and didn't have impact on the teaching and learning or the experience of the children that I was working with. So we have to, in our workplaces, get together and start talking to each other and saying to our leaders, there are so many hours in the day. I want You want me to do this, you want me to do this. Which one is more important? Which ones can I not do? Because we shouldn't have members uh, or, you know, teachers and, and, and leaders and, and support staff working above their contracted hours. 
Um, you know, we know that support staff often work during their lunch break. They cover things. They stay uh, way beyond the school day. We have teachers and, and leaders coming in before school and staying after school, but then going home and doing another two or three hours um, uh, at the end of a day. So we have to make ensure that our members are empowered. And as a, as a union leader, I can give members skills, I can give them support, I can give them the resources to be able to start having those conversations in their own workplaces to make things better. But the government has got a huge responsibility here because young people see that their teachers are exhausted. So if you're a young person and you see that your teachers are exhausted, why would you become a teacher? And the government has got to look at why is it missing its recruitment targets, not just in the traditional shortage subjects, but now in every subject and in primary. Why is it doing that? And part of the reason it's doing that is because of the graduate pay. You can, uh, you know, if you think about teachers, some of them have postgraduate degrees, so a two uh, degree profession. Uh, and teachers know that, uh, or graduates know that they can get a job working in their subject area, maybe working you know, in, in IT or in, uh, in healthcare professions and in hospitality, uh, in all sorts of graduate areas in law and work fewer hours and be paid more. And of course, now we are seeing that the graduate work market is much more flexible so people can work from home. Uh, and uh, have much more, you know, other benefits and teaching has not kept up with that. So the government has got to think, what is it doing? That, what is it doing that's putting people off? And I think people are put off by, um, by the scrutiny that teachers are put under, uh, that one Ofsted inspection or one poor exam results uh, can, can end your career and label a school. Young people know that and, and, and graduates know that. And so the government has got to really think about what it is doing to the profession and what it can do to solve it. And that the NEU is absolutely willing to sit down and come up with, we've got lots of ideas that we would share. Fantastic. So obviously you've been quite critical of the uh, government's approach to sort of uh, recruiting teachers and workload. But actually, what about other aspects of the government education strategy? Um, I, I think like many teachers, I was surprised, let's say, when I read... Uh, that Rishi Sunak was planning to um, bring in maths until 18. Um, now, that struck me as not necessarily a bad idea. Um, it just struck me as completely irrelevant to the current needs of schools. Well, you see, no education policy should be made by number 10, you know, on the steps of a, you know, a, a, a New Year speech because he's worried about his polls. You know, that shouldn't be happening. I absolutely agree that maths should, you know, our, our, our curriculum for many uh, 16 to 18 year olds is really narrow. Um, but the, to just make that decision when we know one in eight maths lessons in secondary schools is taught by a non-math specialist is just bonkers. Um, to know that they've missed the targets and recruiting maths teachers, even when it reduced its own target, is bonkers, which shows that there's no substance. And I think teachers and school leaders are just really fed up with government making decisions that have no substance. But also, if you look back on it, so the government is also making changes to our education system that will mean that staying on and, and, and 
having maths or numeracy as part of your curriculum is even harder. So um, they've cut the funding to functional skills that many students um, in post-16 education uh, carried on doing maths. They are looking to reduce all of the BTECs and uh, 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 general applied qualifications, which will narrow the life choices of many young people, which means that they will only study three A-levels or go to an apprenticeship where there is you know, a lack of, of places and funding. And they're also, you know, they're looking at reducing uh, the curriculum of the uh, GCSE alternatives of um, level one and level two um, qualifications. So, you know, none of it fits together. So it is, you know, for the prime minister to make a decision like that, it, it's, it's laughable and it shows just how out of touch they are with young people's lives and with what society wants and, and needs. You know, you, if, you fe if you don't get a, a four in your GCSE maths and you want, you know, want to stay on and remain to do or retake some of your GCSEs or do A-levels or do a, an applied qualification, you might do, a, you might do some retakes. But a 6-1 college or an FE college isn't necessarily funded properly for that. You know, so there, is, there are so many holes in this government strategy and it shows decades, just years of people making decisions, using education as a political football and making decisions about education without speaking to the profession. Absolutely. I, I don't know the last time we had a education secretary who was a teacher. Um, so uh, that's a really interesting point. So just to move on slightly, um, when I was reading through uh, the uh, General Secretary race and you and your competitor Daniel, you've been described by some as a moderate. What do you take that to mean? I think it's, I think it's a really weird word. It's not a word that I use to describe myself, um, my politics, uh, my, my music sense, my trade union activism. Um, and I spoke to the journalist who, who used that word and, and said, oh, you know, I can't believe you used the moderate word. But what I think people interpret it as um, is that I am uh, maybe moderate in my communication. I, I listen. I will listen and seek out. Uh, I will take time in making strategic decisions. Um, I will make sure that, you know, being part of a, of a general secretary or even deputy general secretary is part of the leadership of our trade union movement. You have to make difficult decisions. You know, we are a, a huge organisation, 450,000 members and growing. We've got 500 staff. We've got a, a turnover of, you know, 65 million. It's a large organisation and you have to be able to make difficult decisions and stand by them and be held accountable for them. And if that saying that I am prepared to do those things and make difficult decisions, but take and seek advice where I need it from the right people, um, and stand by those decisions and be held accountable. If that makes me moderate, then I'm very happy to have that label. No, that's an interesting defence because uh, of the idea of sort of moderation. Because um, trade unionism is traditionally seen as sort of a, a refuge of the left. Um, so, for, to, to hear those is is quite an interesting approach. So, just a couple of uh, more questions before we wrap up. If you were Education Secretary for the day, I know it's a cheesy question, probably one you get quite a lot, but if you were Education Secretary for the day, what would you do and why? I would, uh, two things, I would increase, uh, I would bring back Educational Maintenance Allowance because it gave young people deep.
dignity in post-16 education enabled them to um, you know get to school or college and and buy toiletries and paper and things like that it gave them pride but I would also uh, raise uh, the age of uh, or you know increase the the age of, of play-based education so I would would ensure that we weren't starting our formal education until much later uh, we've lost so many elements of play uh, in uh, in primary education, I think that's really important because play isn't just about making friendships. It's about experimenting. It's about trying things out. It's about uh, you know losing, failing, uh, solving problems, and I think that's a really important um, you know skill for our young people to have. And you see that through our secondary curriculum where we've got we've lost you know so much drama and art and um, you know experiments in our science curriculum that I would ensure that there was play and joy in education. Fantastic. Um, and finally, um, if you weren't a teacher, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, uh, well, before I, uh, well, I, I would definitely be a trade unionist. I think I, my ideal job many years ago was to be head of the Professional Footballers Association. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, do you want I was not expecting that as a response, head of the professional footballers organisation. Fair enough, is all I can really say there. Um, right, let's finish on this note. Obviously, you're running for General Secretary of the National Education Union. What's your sort of two-minute pitch uh, to members who might be listening? Um, my two-minute pitch is, you know, it, it, this. What, what I really want members to do is to vote. I think it's really important that the person that is the leader of the National Education Union has a mandate from our working members in every school, in every college, in every district, in every area of the country. I'm absolutely honoured to have got support from members uh, from England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and in every sector of, of education. It is vitally important that our trade union remains the voice of those people uh, working in all areas of education. And I believe I'm the candidate to do that. I've got good leadership skills. I am, uh, you know, well averse of taking on Julia Hartley Brewer or uh, Melanie Phillips uh, in the press, and I will be the voice for all of our profession. Fantastic. Thank you, Neve, so much for coming on and giving us your afternoon on a Saturday. Um, have a wonderful rest of the day and hopefully we will all speak soon. Thanks Thank you so much. very much. That was Neve Sweeney, candidate for General Secretary of the National Education Union and um, current Deputy General Secretary of the National Education Union, covering everything from subject specialism and the teacher retention crisis uh, to government education strategy, why it's failing teachers at the moment, actually tackling the myths around why she's been described as a moderate, actually saying she's a listening leader rather than someone who's necessarily politically moderate, what she would do if she was education secretary today, and being head of the Professional Football Association, um, an idea I wasn't actually expecting as an answer. That is all for today. Next week, we're going to try and have Daniel Kabide who is the other candidate for General Secretary of the National Education Union, um, who will again be a friendly interview talking about his experiences, what makes him uh, the best candidate for the job. Um, thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of the weekend and great week at school on Monday, guys. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. 
We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.